this is Annie. And this is Bridget. And you're listening to Stuff Mom Never Told You. When you listen to this, recently, I'll say recently, uh, we had a women in online gaming episode, and we thought that we would run the the two-part series that Kristen and Caroline did on women and video games, sort of to supplement that, to give you all kinds of background. So this first one, part one, looks at women in the video game industry and how we could really use some more women in the video game industry. I, at the time, was a producer for Stuff Mom Never Told You. And there are really rad women making really rad games. And off mic, Bridget and I were talking about one that I can, every time I get drunk, I am guaranteed to bring up The Path. (laughs) It sounded so cool. Explain it because it sounded so cool. (laughs) Basically, it's a game, and I love video games that do this, that they play with the objective of the game. So it's kind of uh, based on Little Red Riding Hood, and your objective is to follow the path to Grandmother's house where... You're going to meet grandmother, but also probably the wolf. If you follow the objective, you lose. If you do what the video game is telling you to do, you lose. So you have to go off the path, and you're just kind of wandering around and uh, seeing the scenery is really pretty, and you will encounter a wolf that takes the form of, you do this six times, I think, and it takes a different form of, I would say, something symbolic of what women face in our lives, and it kills you. And then when you're the seventh one, I guess spoiler alerts, um, <laughs> you, the only way you can succeed, or at least the way I interpreted it, is the only way you could succeed was by the sacrifice of these other women to complete your mission. This is just fascinating, and I could talk about it forever. The museum, MODA, Museum of Design Atlanta, had a women in video games exhibit, and it was all games made by women a couple years ago, and we went, and the video's online if you want to see it. There's some really cool, interesting, beautiful stuff that women are making, and I would love to see more of that. Hell yeah. Yeah, I love this idea of video games making arguments about society because people think of video games as just a fun little pastime. It can be, but, you know, there can be games like The Path that really make a salient point about gender in this country, and I love it. Yeah, I love video games that play with the formula of the ending because for video games to work, there is a specific formula, but games are starting to kind of play with it. And there's one of my favorite games, the ending is pretty much a big F you to gamers, but in a fun way that I love. (laughs) Um, Anyway, this is uh, part one of our video game update series about women in the video game industry. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And this is part one of our two-parter on women in video games. And originally, this was going to just be one episode. Mm -hmm. We thought, hey, women in video games. Bada bing, bada boom. Wait, no. Yeah. Yeah. Because we took to our Facebook page to ask Sminty listeners what they want to hear about in terms of women in video games. And... Once we took that into account and started researching, honestly, this could be a three-parter if Mm -hmm. we really wanted to make it that. Because uh, things that were requested for us to talk about had to do with women in gaming credibility, the girl gamer stereotype, getting hit on while playing multiplayer games, what it's like for women in the gaming industry. And just within those few topics... 
there are still so many things to discuss. Yeah, women, I think women in the gaming industry are so fascinating, mainly because I'm not uh, a math person or a science person myself. And so I think these women who are creating these games are so fascinating, and, and the women who play them. Um, but I was telling Kristen that, that there was an ick factor for me when I was reading some of our sources about this topic. And you're thinking, what ick, ick factor? What's your problem? Girls in gaming? What? You know, and no, that's that's not it at all. The ick factor stems from the fact that these women who are both playing the games and designing the games face so much abuse, so many threats from men and boys in the industry and other gamers. It just created this really icky feeling. But the upside, the bright side to all of the recognition and the more media attention to those ick factors Mm -hmm. is the fact that regardless of that, these women who are making and playing games are really starting to change an entire industry or at least broaden an industry Mm -hmm. uh, that has such a massive reach to so many people. And I'm glad you mentioned too, Caroline, science and math, because this is in a way an extension of our series on women in STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math. Because remember... This is this is a STEM field. Yeah. Video games is STEM. And, yeah, and like the rest of the STEM fields, male-dominated. Exactly. So for this part one episode, we are going to focus on the video game industry and women in it. And in part two, we'll talk more about the women who are playing the games and the women actually in the video games. Right. So let's look at a breakdown of who has the controllers. 58% of Americans altogether play video games. The average game player is 30 years old, but the largest demographic is 36 and over. Now, if you're looking just at women, this is coming from the Entertainment Software Association's 2013 report on gaming. Women make up 45% of the entire game-playing population. And I think that's an important point to make right out of the gate because I think the stereotype is that there's like two women total yeah, anywhere. It's just you and me sitting here with our old Game Boys right. from childhood. Yeah, uh, But we should point out that when we say the entire game-playing population, those games are not only things like Call of Duty, but also... Candy Crush on your phone or even board games. This is we're talking about mega game here. But then if you look just at video games, women still comprise 31% of that gaming population. And that's compared to boys 17 and under who comprise only 19% of the video game population. So there are still plenty of women playing video games, and there are also plenty of women buying video games. 46% of the time. Women are the most frequent game purchasers. And that might be because we are buying games for ourselves, but also buying games for gentlemen in our lives or maybe other uh, women in our lives. Yeah, well, my mom was the one who bought me video games when I was a kid. Yeah. So there you go. There we go. And uh, by the way, if you can't keep up with all of the sources that we're citing, don't worry. All of them will be posted in the podcast post over on Stuff Mom Never Told You because we're going to cite a lot of statistics and we've got a lot of sources coming your way. But don't worry, you will have one handy reference for that. Well, so as far as what we are playing when we pick up those controllers, uh, this is coming from Variety back in October 2013. As many as 30% of women are playing the more violent games like Halo, uh, Call of Duty counts about 20% of their players as women, while Grand Theft Auto counts women as 15% of its audience. 
I will say, Caroline, that in regard to Halo, mm-hmm. I was just haloed out in college from sitting around more hours than I care to even consider watching my then boyfriend and his friends playing that game. I can't play Halo for that reason. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's uh, that's it for me. Um, also, I do take issue with this Variety article that repeatedly referred to women playing games as quote-unquote femme players. Yeah. So strange. This came out in 2013. Yeah, that uh, to me, when you say femme, that has a totally different connotation than just being a woman. Yeah. yeah. Now, when it comes to who's making the games, the percentage of women shrinks pretty drastically. Only 11% of video game developers are women. And if we look inside the games, especially big name games, you have even fewer women represented. Only 4% of video game protagonists, for instance, among the top 25 selling games of 2013. For instance, in 2013, among the top 25 selling games, only 4% of those games' protagonists were women. And when you're in the store looking at the boxes themselves, two-thirds of all video game box art features no female characters whatsoever. Now, there are some games on the horizon that are adding, you know, the option to play a female character. Uh, Games like Call of Duty Ghosts, you can customize your character and play as a female soldier for the first time, which makes sense considering women are now, like, legit allowed on the front lines. So there's that. Um, And the game Mass Effect 3 has also added playable female characters. But, I mean, you see that. Like, you see how the numbers have decreased, as as Kristen and I have ticked them off, that, you know, where you have 31% of video game playing people being women, but only 11% are the developers... It makes sense that there, you know, there's such a small number of women actually developing the games, so that kind of bleeds over into not having that many female characters. Yeah, so let's talk for a minute about who these women are who are working in video games and what kind of stuff they're doing. First of all, I would like to offer a shameless stuff mom never told you dot com plug. Uh, we recently posted about Carol Shaw, who was the first female video game designer perhaps around the world, but at least in the U.S. She was definitely the first. Uh, She worked her first job out of college with Atari, and she created the highly popular game when she moved over to Activision called River Raiders. But the interesting thing about her is that she's super low profile. Mm -hmm. She got out of video games, the, the gaming industry entirely, in the early 90s, essentially, because she'd made some wise investments and her husband made plenty of cash. So they were like, she was like, I, I don't need to do this anymore. Um, but the numbers of women working in video games isn't all that greater than it was in Carol Shaw's days when she was the only woman really hanging out at Atari. Um, in her time, in the 80s, for instance, women comprised about 3% of the video gaming workforce. But today, again... It's only around 12%. 
Yeah, and when you break down even further the the women who are in this industry, so we we mentioned that they're eleven percent of video game designers. They make up three percent of programmers, sixty percent of graphic designers, and twenty five percent of the tech jobs involved. Like for instance, building the software. And when you look at some of those names, we have Donna Bailey, who started at Atari as an engineer in 1980. She co-created Centipede, which I used to play on my TI-85 during biology class in freshman year of uh, high school. Yeah, and it's interesting that that Bailey was working at Atari the same time as Carol Shaw. She came on right after Shaw. But she ended up leaving the industry distinctly because of criticism that she had to deal with from her male colleagues. Uh, there was an interview with Carol Shaw over um, on this video gaming website. I think it's called like Vintage Video Games or something. And she didn't really acknowledge sexism as an issue that she had to deal with on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. But she also talked about how growing up she was a real math nerd. And so she was used to being the only woman right. in the room. And it kind of just rolled off her back. She said it would happen every now and then. But apparently for Donna Bailey, it was a lot more of a a potent issue. Um, And someone else who also comes up who's still in the industry. She's a rare veteran who's been working in the industry since 1981. That's Brenda Romero. And she has credits on more than 20 games. Yeah. And I mean, speaking of uh, criticism from male colleagues and and male gamers, et cetera, et cetera, Romero had an interesting quote that I cannot say on the podcast where, you know, people were talking to her about gender issues and, and she was talking about criticism from men. And she basically said, and I will omit the bad words, but she basically said, Hey, you guys, I helped build this industry. Did you like all my pauses? Yes. Um, you know, she, she's basically saying, like, I am a veteran. I don't deserve any less respect than these these men that I work with. And and so there was a lot of frustration in her tone that, that female gamers and game designers have to put up with all that abuse. Well, imagine, too, that if you're someone like her who's been working in games since the early 80s, mm-hmm. how many times she's had to answer that question to. Yeah. I'm sure that gender is perhaps an annoying topic for her to even talk about because, you know, she probably wants to be recognized as simply an amazing veteran designer, not, oh, you're a woman. What's that like? <laughs> how do ovaries feel? So today, considering the fact that women are still only comprising around 12% of the industry, a lot of the advice that you hear for women who want to break into the ranks in order to do that, essentially what women need to do is just start building games. There are so many resources now. You don't have to be working for Nintendo to build an amazing game. And so it, it sort of it, it reminded me actually of advice that we would hear, Caroline, in journalism school of how to become you know, a credible writer is you just have to start writing, whether mm-hmm. you're doing you know, freelance jobs literally for free or just starting a blog. You just start making your stuff so that you have some kind of resume for people to look at and see that you can actually build these products. And on top of that, especially if you're a woman, you got to have a lot of perseverance in order to break in. Well, yeah, and especially since uh, women, young women, might not have the same avenues open to them that that men do, Um, especially, you know, we've talked about this in the STEM fields. Not only are there fewer women in the STEM fields than men, 
But that just means that there are fewer allies bringing you in or even raising your interest if you're like a 12-year-old in, in math or science class. And that's, that's something that Kate Edwards said. She's the executive director of the International Game Developers Association. Um, and she says that the root issue is that we really need to bolster the availability of STEM programs for girls and young women to get them interested in games as a career path. And it's the same thing that Kristen and I talked about in our whole STEM series. If you get out there... If you get the idea into girls' heads from a young age that these are even jobs that are available, maybe they just don't know or maybe they think, no, that's just a guy thing. So getting it into their heads is so very important. Which leads then, and again echoing our STEM series, to the importance of the visibility of women in games while it's a lot of fun to play or watch something like let's say Halo, if I hadn't spent so many hours watching an ex-boyfriend play it in college. Those kind of, I mean, it's, it's, it's not saying that all, all video game characters need to be women in order for this to happen, but there is a distinct absence of them. And so one thing that comes up a lot when you're talking about the video game industry are issues of sexism, and that's a controversial topic to bring up because a lot of gamers don't take too kindly to these kinds of critiques on the industry. But when you simply look at the numbers and how marketing money is siphoned out, it's the same kind of assumptions that are made in the video game industry as are made in Hollywood in terms of assuming that, well, you know what? Uh, If we make a movie about women, guys aren't going to want to go see it. But if we make a movie about men, then men and women are going to go see it. So we're going to make a lot more money even though statistics suggest otherwise. So let's talk a little bit how that applies to video games when we come right back from a quick break. Okay, so right before the break, Kristen was talking about some of the obstacles that women have to face in the game gaming industry. Uh, one of those being marketing and the fact that a lot less money goes to women developers and marketing for women-led games. Yeah, because a lot of times when you get more women on a creative team, they're like, oh, hey, you know, we could we could make this game about a female protagonist or at least have, you know, women in addition to men in the game that, you, that are playable characters. But uh, Jeffrey Zatkin, who's a video game analyst, talked about this to Penny Arcade's Ben Kachera in this article that was widely publicized. And Zakin said, quote, games with a female-only protagonist get half the spending of female-optional protagonist games and only 40% of the marketing budget of male-led games. Less than that, actually, because, he goes on to explain, of that thinking that, well... The only people playing games are guys. So we got to make games for guys. And while, yes, guys do make up a majority, but you still are overlooking a massive population. And one thing they talk about as far as money goes is the whole thing of, well, it would take so much time and money to, to, you know, redo some of these characters to be women. And it's like, seriously? (laughs) It takes so long to craft realistic looking breasts caroline well obviously (laughs) 
<laughs> I mean, have you seen how long did it take to to mold Laura Croft's first first figure? And this is something that the site VG247's Brenna Hillier took issue with an example of this more recently when the video game company Capcom was making this game called Deep Down, and one of the uh, the game makers said explicitly, hey, we're not going to have any female characters in this game. Or I think he more just said, we're only going to have dudes in this game. But her point was, hey, uh, this is a game about time travelers kind of going through and fighting historic missions here and there. And I'm just not buying this, that Mm -hmm. somehow, because they said for quote-unquote plot reasons, they could only stick with men, to which she basically said, uh, hey, you know what? I, I, a, I'm not buying it. And B, quote, better lazily crafted women than no women at all. Basically, you can make it work if you want to make it work. Yeah, and she she writes this basically fake script, between this imagined conversation between a gamer and a developer and just a woman, just like woman character. And through this conversation, she has these, these two-dimensional characters realize like, oh, wait. If we make games that don't treat women like subhuman dust bunnies, fit only to be rescued, kidnapped, lusted after, or left out of the picture altogether, women might buy more of our games. Yeah, and if you want to remain a growth industry, then it it would be wise, you would think, to go after new audiences, new consumers who are just sitting there waiting, wanting to play games. They're already playing games. And I liked how she pointed out how hey, listen, if you're taking all of this time to make all these different kinds of armor and weapons and, you know, carefully sculpting men's pectoral muscles, then you can't just, you can't add another option, just one more player option for a female. And on top of that, she, before she even goes into her explanation, sort of makes a preemptive, hey, if you are about to comment talking about how women have no place in video games, just save yourself the time because I'm not going to respond to it because this is an argument that comes up all the time and it's foolish. It's simply foolishness. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, so um, moving outside of the game and into the real world, let's look at the actual direct sexism that women in the gaming industry experience. Um, Chris and I have talked about on the podcast before different social movements that kind of are birthed on Twitter, various hashtags that sort of rally people to a cause. And the gaming industry is no different. They got the one reason why hashtag back in 2012 that ended up revealing a lot of issues that women in the industry face. Yeah, there were all sorts of uh, issues of harassment that women were sharing via Twitter with that hashtag, such as getting groped at gaming conventions, issues of isolation, being dissatisfied with the product. Uh, One tweet for instance, said, because I got blank stares when I asked why a female soldier in a game I worked on looked like a porn star. Mm -hmm. Um, On top of that, there are issues of pay gaps. On average, for instance, women make 27% less than men in the industry, and on and on and on. And, And in between those tweets about issues of harassment, you also had a lot of women stepping forward, too, and saying, hey, if we don't want to discourage other women from getting involved in games, the fact of the matter is, we need more, and 
if someone's looking for a mentor, I'll step up and do it. You know, there's there's clearly some solidarity mm-hmm. that's going on as well. Yeah, but then you have the issue of women leaving the industry altogether because of that harassment and death threats and rape threats that they have faced online. Uh, Zoe Quinn, for instance, she created the game Depression Quest. She received an onslaught of harassment Basically, just because of her gender, because she dared, as a female, create a game. Yeah, I forget the name of the site, but essentially she made this game herself and posted it on um, uh, some kind of like game-sharing site and just got dogpiled with all of this harassment going on. And, I mean, the, the interview that she gave to Vice magazine was heartbreaking because she just she was clearly so exhausted by it. Yeah. Like it was to the point to where you know when when you get to a point to where rape threats really don't have any impact on you, that's not a good place to right. be in. Right. And that's not the way it should be. Absolutely not. And Kate Edwards, who we mentioned earlier, she's the executive director of the International Game Developers Association. She was talking to Polygon and saying that the organization is looking into starting support groups for developers because of this problem. And she says that while the harassment isn't having a major impact on development yet, she said we're at the cusp of where it could. And while men do get death threats, too... I mean, the the bulk of them are against women. I mean, b- uh, former Bioware developer Jennifer Hepler, her name is in the news a lot because she received death threats against her children. Yeah, the story of her harassment is just kind of mind-boggling in the way that it took off because there was a snippet from some interview that she had done years ago about her like gaming habits or something, and it got reposted on a forum and essentially a cyber mob organized around it and eventually it got to the point to where people were had found out not only her address but also the address of her children's school and were posting it online threatening to you know kidnap her children from school mm-hmm. telling her that her children should have been aborted threatening to rape her and and even when male developers get death threats as well because they also deal with this you know we don't want to say that women are exclusively the targets of this kind of cyber harassment but a lot of times too when men get threats it's often linked to and we're going to rape your wife there are always these like just violent rapey threats that happen. Mm -hmm. And if they're not threatening their wives with violence, they're just talking about how you're gay. Yeah. Like, well, in in possibly other words. But, I mean, that's the gist. Like, we're going to insult you and threaten you by saying that you're gay. Yeah, and this this is the dark side of the gaming, the hardcore, the hardest of the hardcore gaming community, which there was one article that I was reading talking about how a lot of them actually might be younger boys, that subset of the, you know, the 17 and under demographic who might be making more of these direct kind of threats because older men with jobs might not, you know, might be a little wiser to uh, putting, leaving a breadcrumb trail of cyber harassment that could possibly threaten their employment at some point. Um, But it's horrifying to see what women like Jennifer Helper and Zoe Quinn are having to put up with. That shouldn't be part of the expected job. And that was the thing Kate Edwards was saying was that, I mean, it's really becoming something that you need to, especially if you're a woman in the industry, 
you got to prep for. Yeah, it has a total chilling effect, not only on women wanting to enter the field, but on them wanting to stay in the field. Yeah, and it's also a byproduct, too, of social media in the sense that, you know, there there's never been a thinner line between, you know, the industry side and the player side, where mm-hmm. now, you know, thanks to social media, you can, you know, tweet directly to these people, right. whatever you think. And I think also part of the harassment that Hepler was receiving was because she was um, influential in making the switch in a Bioware game to allow gay romance among male protagonists. Hmm. Yeah. You know. But I mean, speaking of that that social media, that fine line, that one one thing we read was talking to this guy who was basically the, the quote-unquote sheriff. He worked for Microsoft uh, when they were developing this game, and there were changes. There were, there were going to be changes happening. And so as the sheriff for kind of social media interaction, he was tasked with dealing with some of this harassment and these these basically crazed fans, this core group of gamers who were so upset by the changes. And he because he was a public face, he himself became the like got the brunt of the abuse. And he was like, look, I'm not I'm not dealing with this. I, I think he moderated Xbox Live, which I cannot even imagine because the the kind of there are studies that have been done analyzing the comments that players will make back to each other while they're, you know, playing games together. And it's like horrific stuff that they say back and forth. So you can only imagine if they're disgruntled at some kind of game change that is being made. And he said he's no longer working there, but he told the interviewer that he still gets like. 50 emails a day from people who are just enraged about something. Um, I feel like those people should like take up a volunteering project or or become a social advocate for something. Be, like direct that passion into something useful. I don't know. Well, I think it's I don't think it's because working on the Internet, I don't want to believe that. It's because people are evil in their hearts because that would just make it really hard for me to wake no, up and go to work I, in the morning. I think it's because of the anonymity of the Internet. Right. This is the awful byproduct of it is that people are growing up more and more having no consequence mm-hmm. for their communications because we are communicating more and more via text message, via you know instant message, Twitter YouTube comments, and you just say whatever comes to your mind. Yep. <clears throat> but I, I do wish they would direct the rage into something more productive. Yeah, you and me both. Um, <laughs> but moving away from this dark underbelly of what it is like sometimes to work in video games, let's go on the complete opposite end of the spectrum to not so much the women making the games, but the women who might be promoting the games at conventions like E3, although I think E3 is cracking down on this, um, we got to talk about booth babes for a minute. Yeah, and booth babes, you know, it might be models. It's it's typically really attractive younger women who do know a thing. They tend to know a thing or two about the games, yeah. whether it's whether it's just to be able to answer basic questions from guys at conventions or whether they're actual gamers themselves. But... There, there are a lot of stories, same same with um, booth babes at marijuana weed conventions, at uh, beer tasting conventions. Like, it seems to be a common thread through conventions, really. But anyway. Um, what, that sex sells? 
Oh my gosh. <laughs> Did I just coin a term? I think you just coined, yeah, th- we're on to something. Wow. But so anyway, these these booth babes, as they're called, are a pretty popular way to kind of like shill your product, draw people to your booth, attra- you know, attract more men to your product. But they're kind of not as big of a thing as they used to be. Yeah, I think that as there has been more, uh, speaking of the power of social media, I mean, for every evil, there is also a lot of good, including like the the one reason why hashtag. But also, I think that this is partially why uh, booth babes are seen in a less positive light, simply because everybody's seeing them now. Whenever uh, a giant gaming convention happens, you know, there's now this, uh, well, who's using booth babes? Are we still trying to use boobs to sell video games or technology? Um, and... Spencer Chen wrote a piece for TechCrunch about a little experiment that he did with a split test for, um, I forget which company it was, but it was some tech company. And they were allowed to have two spaces at a convention. He was like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to have just knowledgeable people at one and I'll have booth babes at the other and we'll see how many sales are converted for one versus the other. And guess what? The booth babes don't actually help sell products because a lot of times the men who, you know, swarm to booth babes are probably not the you know, key stakeholders that you need to talk to in order to actually sell your product en masse. A lot of times they're just maybe lower level employees who mm-hmm. are really pumped about seeing, you know, getting to go to Vegas for a week and maybe take pictures with booth babes. Yeah. Um, whereas when you stock your booth, with just knowledgeable people who may or may not be in bikinis, you actually sell things a lot more effectively. Yeah, especially if if the person walking around from booth to booth is a woman. Women tend to avoid the booth babes. They're- yeah, um, but I will say this reminded me, too, of that email that we received and mm-hmm. read on, at the end of our marijuana episode from a craft beer model, a beer babe, if you will. And she was basically saying, listen... I have blonde hair and big boobs, and I really enjoy beer. And this is a stereotype that I have to deal with, of the assumption that just by virtue of how I look, Mm -hmm. that I'm a bimbo. And so booth babe Elaine Lowe wrote sort of a similar self-defense over at Jezebel, basically being like, hey, listen, (laughs) booth babes are getting all sorts of flack, but... We're usually just trying to make a buck at these things. Yeah, she says the depressing truth is that standing around in a costume at a convention pays far better than writing ever has. So it's it's being used to supplement other career goals. And I'm sure she probably makes more doing that than she would like waiting tables at a coffee house or something. Yeah. And, and the thing about it, too, is that you are um, there was an article published at The Verge in early 2013 talking about how. Booth babes are gradually being replaced by booth bros and booth bots, which makes so much more sense because this is technology. Robots. Hello. John Robot. Yeah. He was talking about how people just like flock to these booth bots because they're interactive and you can, you know, I mean. And they're robots. Your your audience is gamers and you're putting a big old robot in your booth. Like, that's awesome. Yeah. I would want to go play with the robot. Yeah. I'd rather go play with the robot. And I think as this has gotten more and more attention, sort of like with the whole bro grammar culture in you know, the tech industry as well, where it's being a little bit more looked down upon to be so directly insensitive to the women who are starting to comprise 
greater numbers of your industry. It just makes you look a little foolish if mm-hmm. to use that kind of knee-jerk promotion. And I don't have her name in front of me, but there was actually a relatively high-profile women woman in video games who stepped down from a position because with a, with a, a company because she went to an event and there were booth babes everywhere and she was just like nope you don't know you clearly your company you know standards clearly don't align to my standards see you later hmm. i'll find somebody who actually gets it interesting yeah and so i mean and that kind of leads us to this question of is it getting better and yes i think it's absolutely getting better there are still so many horror stories particularly coming from you know, just these cyber mobs that pop up every now and then. But I think in terms of the industry itself, mm-hmm. there's at least more recognition. And there are a lot of women at the top. We don't want to make this a totally Deb Downer kind of episode because there are a lot of women who are doing a lot of amazing things. Yeah. You've got women like Jade Raymond, who's the head of Ubisoft Toronto, who oversaw a 300-person team creating Tom Clancy's Splinter Cell Blacklist. Yeah, there's also Bonnie Ross and Kiki Wolfkill at uh, 343 Industries that are heading up high-profile games such as my favorite, the Halo franchise. (laughs) Um, There's also Kim McAuliffe and Elizabeth Sampet, who are leading game designers at Microsoft Game Studios and Storm 8. Uh, Hope Cochran is the CFO of King, which publishes Candy Crush. Let's be honest, women. We love some Candy Crush. Uh, IndieCade CEO is Stephanie Barish. Um, there's also Holly Liu, who co-founded Kabam, which is known for its Kingdoms of Camelot franchise. And there are, I mean, we could go on and on and on. There is mm-hmm. literally a laundry list of women sitting on <laughs> these notes in front of my face. And I don't want to just turn this into calling, a, you know, a roll call of every single woman. But it is exciting to see whether it's with independent games or with larger corporations, you do have women at the top levels. Kind of, yeah. I mean, it's reflective of what's going on in the broader tech industry, where you, you got we got plenty of women on the top, and we have a lot of women, I think, too, who mm-hmm. really want to break in there. Yeah. It's like, how can we build that bridge to where you know there's more of a direct pipeline between the two? Yeah, because the younger women need mentors, and one thing that's come up too in conversations of women in the industry is how it is so important to create an environment that will keep them around long enough to where they, to where they are like a Brenda Romero who has veteran insight. Yeah. That's important. Yeah, well, a lot of the women uh, in the list of, of women at the top of the industry, some of them, you know, rose to the top, but some of them co-created their companies or yeah. solely created their companies. And there is some recognition for that. Uh, Microsoft's recent Women in Gaming Awards Uh, has quickly grown in just six years. It began as a series of informal dinners hosted by a group of female developers from the Xbox division. Uh, And this past year, they honored Anita Sarkeesian, whose name is all over everything when you look up anything about women in gaming. Yeah, and talk about controversial. Absolutely. Oh, Lord. We're going to talk about Anita Sarkeesian in our next episode, I'm sure much to the chagrin of at least one person listening who posted about how he didn't want to hear about her name on our Facebook page. But <laughs> we have to talk about her. She actually just received a huge award from the uh, Game Developers Association. It's some sort of ambassadorial award recognizing people who have changed the industry for the better. And I think that right there is a sign, too, of how 
the industry is improving. So, yeah. you know, there's a lot of it, it's a tough road to hoe right now, I think, for if, you, if you're a woman in gaming. But I mean, having met and talked to women in the industry, new and who have been in there for a while, I mean, women, they do it because they love it. Mm-hmm. They're making things that, that are really fun to play and really enjoyable. And, and I feel like that passion for games sort of balances out at least to some extent yeah the issues the harassment or sexism that they might have to deal with yeah at least for a little while because i mean the fact is a lot of that abuse is coming from people who feel threatened a lot of men and and boys who feel like no this is a male-dominated industry needs to stay a male-dominated industry so i'm going to abuse you into maintaining the status quo yeah or just kind of the the misguided logic industry-wide of thinking that you have one specific demo of you know an 18 year old male gamer Mm -hmm. who is the only person that you should cater to right but i think that perspective is absolutely changing and we're going to talk a lot more about that and about the women who are playing video games and the women in video games in our part two of women in video games so now i hope that there are some people men women whomever who are working in the industry or might have some insights that they can share with us. Let us know your thoughts. Momstuffdiscovery.com is where you can email us. You can also tweet us at momstuffpodcast. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you when we come right back from a quick break. I have a letter here from Megan about our cars episode, Driving and Gender. She says, I just wanted to let you guys know that I am a woman and mom, and I am the main driver in my household. For a long time, when we rode anywhere as a family, we rode in my car just because that was where my daughter's car seat was, and I almost always drove. But since then, we've bought a family car, both mine and my husband's, but I still drive 90% of the time when we go somewhere together. Like in relationships where the man usually drives, I typically drive because my husband is kind of a nervous driver and he prefers to ride. He still comments about me speeding and such, but he just gets much more frustrated when he is driving, so it's just easier for me to do it. I typically don't mind it, but when he does drive, I enjoy the break. That's funny, Megan. Uh, My boyfriend also comments on my speeding, and he can just deal with it because I'm driving. So thank you. Uh, Well, I've got an email here from Heather also about our Men in Cars episode. She said, I had to laugh because this was a timely episode. I'm 43 and just purchased a new car last weekend. Since both my husband and son are in a physical therapy assistant program right now, I'm the primary breadwinner. I went to see about getting a car for my son and ended up buying a car for myself instead and got my son a perfectly good hand-me-down. He was totally happy to get it, by the way, even though the salesman knew I was the primary breadwinner and that my car was paid off. He still asked me if I was okay to buy the car without my husband. I smiled and simply said, yes, even if he was here, I would be making the same purchase. And she goes on to say, another thing I found funny is the stereotype that women don't know how to drive manual transmissions. I was taught on a stick shift and actually prefer to drive them to an automatic. I think it's because I'm such a control freak. Many times over the years, salespeople have said, oh, this is a stick shift. Is that okay? 
I tell them that I actually prefer that and they relax. The funny thing is that I've never seen this happen when my husband has gone looking for cars. My last car was a stick and when the woman came out to go over the final paperwork, she was reading quickly and started handing me the keys and then pulled them back as she said, oh, this is a stick shift. Can you drive a stick? I thought, really? No, I just figured out how to drive one with a brand new car. Here's your sign. Some things never change. The can you drive a stick has now become, are you okay to buy this without your husband? For the record, I have the better driving record in our household, and the way we decide who drives is by whose car we're taking. If it's mine, I drive. If it's his, he drives. However, on long trips, we take turns. So thanks, Heather, and thanks to everybody who's written in to us. MomStuffAtDiscovery.com is where you can email us and to find links to all of our social media as well as this podcast episode with all of our sources included. And, you know, if you want to watch our videos and read our blogs as well, there's one place to go. It's StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 